Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Hey, Nisa. Hey, Lisa. It's great to see you again. You too. We have a really fun episode planned for you guys today. Um, it's a little bit different for the Q Word Podcast. We have a virtual full house of guests on this episode, and we are going to spend our time, let's see if I get this right, talking about two different airway interventions for patients who are being intubated um, in emergent or crash scenarios. Is that right? That's right. Awesome. Okay. So my understanding is that both of these techniques are used in the pre-hospital environment fairly universally, but you want to explore the role that they could have in the hospital environment, uh, particularly in the ER, right? That's right. Great. So to do that, we have assembled a trio of podcasters, a virtual hat trick of flight clinicians, the three musketeers of airways. Our first guest is Tyler Christofuli. Did I get that right? Perfect. Nice. So you are a flight medic for LifeLink 3 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where, uh, what, it's a balmy 32? It's negative 32. Negative 32. That's the actual temperature. Yeah, yeah that's okay. the, the wind chill is negative 51 well, right now. Yeah, so clearly you're at least wearing, what, another pair of socks, right? <laughs> and underwear. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's all about the layering. Can you all even fly with that? Nope. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's how we got yeah. him. That's why he's here. <laughs> We're also taking you away from your own podcast, right? The Foam Frat uh, blog and podcast that you've been doing for a little while, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Sam Ireland and I started it, and then we've kind of just built a team from there. Yeah, you do great work on there, and we'll talk a little bit more about your podcast at the uh, end of the episode, and we'll put uh, how to find it up on our show notes as well. But before we get there, I have heard also about you that you are airway obsessed. That's a little bit true. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a... Fair assessment. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> now, I heard that you actually presented about this salad technique um, at the Fast 18 conference, but you did so in a T-Rex costume. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's accurate. So um, and what was funny is right before, so we were going to demonstrate the salad technique, which I'll get into in a minute. Uh, but the, right before, the motor that blows the air into the T-Rex costume broke. So I was in this like deflated T-Rex costume <laughs> and we had like 20 minutes before we were getting ready to go out. So I ran to the gas station and I bought some Altoids and a couple batteries and I built a battery pack oh. to hook to the fan and got it to work just enough to do that small little segment that's been floating around out there. Um, but <laughs> you, freaking, you freaking MacGyvered that. I have no idea the FOMED gods came together and helped me out because it would have been really lame in a deflated T-Rex costume. Would not have had this. I don't think anyone would have even known that it was a T-Rex. Uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was a fantastic time. Nice. So we're going to come right back to you, Tyler, and the salad technique. But I also want to stop and introduce the other pair of guests that we have in the virtual studio today. Uh, everyone say hello to the Boone Brothers. Yep. Uh, hello, Brian. It's nice to see you. Hey, what's up? Thanks and, for having us. And Mike. Hey. It's great to see you. Uh, how you doing? 
Good, good. W- welcome, welcome. Thanks for having us. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Brian. You have a veritable alphabet <laughs> soup after your name here. Yeah, don't worry about it. Well, you are a uh, BSN, an RN, an NREMT, a CEN, and yeah. a CFR. It doesn't mean much. It means uh, he's, he's double patient, certifiable. So. Double certifiable. Yeah. Is that what you call it? Double certifiable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm, yeah. I'm comfortable with that, uh, especially since I can see here that apparently you've had over, uh, what, 18 years of extensive nursing experience. Yep. Yep. It, it, that's all I know. That's that all a, you know. I mean, that's a long time. That's all I've done. Yep. That's all you've ever done. Was a, was a baby in the hospital and grew up there. So. Oh, so it's like you, you fell out of the womb and you went crawling over and started pushing buttons on machines saying, hey, what does this do and how can I make that's people it. better? That's it. And you've done this with uh, cardiovascular critical care, with emergency care, and uh, high-level leadership in the hospital. Is that also correct? Yeah. Well, I was prior to flying, I was an ER director. So I, I was in ER management. Mm-hmm. Um, really wanted to get back to taking care of patients. So I don't recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> get it's away a from tough gig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can also see here on your bio that you uh, know American Sign Language. So everybody, he is signing this entire episode. It's an audio yeah, me- no. medium, so you can't see that, but just take my word for it. I don't even know how you got my resume there. I guess my <laughs> don't worry about it. it. We- <laughs> yeah, we did a real deep yeah. dive on the dark web. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember giving that much information. I think there was some stalking of the website. Uh, I'm, I'm over yeah. here sitting here thinking they got these really nice <laughs> intros, and mine included a deflated dinosaur suit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, cut that out. I want a retake. Yeah, uh, no retakes. No I think retakes. they found Brian's online dating profile, actually. Uh. <laughs> All right, well, then let's take a look at you, Mike. It looks as if you are the younger brother in this equation. Uh, younger but smarter, yeah. <laughs> Wiser. <laughs> Well, you've been doing this for uh, quite some time too. You've been in the nursing uh, business and the uh, the, host- uh, the healthcare field for quite some time. Uh, it looks like you've been a yep. flight nurse for um, over ten years, and uh, have been uh, not a flight nurse. I've been a nurse for over ten years. I've been flying for almost six. Okay, and in this time, you've got experience from the neurosurgical to the cardiovascular critical care uh, unit. Yeah, yeah, very heavy critical care background. Uh, everything from open heart to cardiovascular critical care wow. to neurosurgical and then just kind of multidisciplinary experience. So did did you ever do ER? No, um, I've done ER holds before, but I was never officially an ER staff member. All right. So most of my background is in ICU right. intensive We're going to let that yeah. slide. <laughs> you know, we make, we kind of make fun of ICU <laughs> nurses sometimes and all, all in good fun. This is an ER podcast, right? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, you know yeah, who well. convinced me. Well, I was going to say, you know who convinced me to go to the yeah. ICU? That was Brian. <laughs> well, I was. In, so, that was yeah. his ultimate joke on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because this nursing was a second career choice for me. And, and I have to thank Brian for getting me even into the medical field. But mm-hmm. that was kind of his recommendation. So that's the route I took. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Another interesting fact I have here about you is that apparently you're a Blade Runner fan. I'm assuming it's a. The new Blade Runner, the one that just came out. A Blade Runner fan. Yeah, the, the, I've got a quote about here you... that uh, uh, a black blood nothingness began to spin. Oh, yeah. man, you guys. <laughs> That's in your signature, right? Yeah, you guys did dig people. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you might, you'd see me blushing a little bit if this wasn't uh... a podcast. But yeah, I, do, I like Blade Runner a lot. I get kind of geeky when it comes to sci-fi, actually. Uh, yeah, me too. I'm a so... big Star Wars fan. Blade Runner, all that good stuff. Uh, great. We'll have to compare notes after we stop recording. Then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can also say that apparently you have the best mustache in the business. I mean, you guys can't see it, audience, but uh, let me tell you, it really is spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think Sam Matta from Echo said that. I don't know how uh, accurate that is, what my contenders he are. Almost, he almost I'll, I'll did not it. get a flight job because of his mustache. Oh. That's actually a, a true story. Is it a restriction? He came oh. This is actually wow. a funny story. Yeah. Wow. I used to have a yeah. handlebar mustache. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, we're glad that they ultimately uh, allowed you to join the ranks. It's, uh, <laughs> that's a relief for all of us. And we are really glad that all three of you were able to join us today. Thank you again for stopping by. So at this point, I'm just going to pass it off to everyone else. I am here to learn, and I hope that you will teach me and our listeners a whole bunch. Uh, Niso, why don't you take it away? So the first thing we always ask in any interview, fellas, this question is for all three of you. Brian, do you say the Q word when you're on shift? Uh, absolutely not. Oh, no. Unless you want to get beat oh. down. <laughs> all right. Good, good. Mike, how about you? Do you ever use the Q word? Nope. Good. Tyler, are you superstitious? No, I say it all the time. Oh, no. <laughs> I, like, I say it on purpose. Yeah. I, I'm like, oh, your boots. Okay. It's really quiet around here. Oh, you know, I take, no. I take my boots off. Oh, I lay no. down. I start cooking mac and cheese. I do pretty much everything I can. <laughs> you like to fly then. Yeah, you, you bring you it like on yourself, fly. right? Okay, so let's talk about the salad technique. Tyler, um... When we talk about airways, you hear a lot of chat about oxygenation and ventilation. But the, the question I think that led to the development of the salad technique was what about decontamination? Can you tell us what salad stands for, what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Describe it. So for salad us? stands for suction assisted laryngeal airway decontamination. And this was coined by Dr. Jim DeCanto, who works out of St. Luke's, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first came across Jim his video was on MCRID and he was doing this maneuver where he would suction and he would park the suction catheter actually inside the esophagus and then he would intubate above it. So that way as the patient is vomiting, you have a suction catheter that is catching it before it starts to fill up the hypopharynx and it maintains your view. And I'm like, this is like, this is so simple. Why has nobody thought of this before? And I think it's because typically we're taught Oh, you cannot suction no longer than 5, 10, 15 seconds, whatever the flavor is. And we got a suction. We come out. We go to intubate. It fills back up with vomit. We go suction. It fills back up with vomit. And it starts this vicious cycle. And so the standard suction catheter that we've seen everybody use for how long now has been the Yankower. And the Yankower is a dentist tool. It was created by a guy named Sidney Yankower, and it was developed so that way you wouldn't be suctioning out clocks and stuff when you were suctioning someone's mouth. It was not meant for emergency medicine. So it's it's actually a tiny little delicate suction catheter, and we try to make it like a shop vac because that's what we need it for, not delicate little plucking of blood. We try to make it into the shop vac of the of the contaminated airway, and it just doesn't do the trick. So, yeah. Right, exactly. So, you know, you got somebody who's, you know, in emergency medicine, we're not dealing with fasted patients. I mean, they got cheeseburgers and whatever in their stomach, and then you're trying to suction this out, and it's just, you might as well not even suction, because it's just not doing the job that you need. And so what I think a lot of us did prior to that is we hook up a mech aspirator, a meconium aspirator to an ET tube, and just use it like a garden hose to suction it out and try to get all of that out. Now, the other aspect of the Yankower suction catheter is you have to use your thumb or your finger to occlude the hole to create that loop so it can actually you know suction otherwise you're venting out that hole and it was interesting there's a couple studies done where they found that people routinely like doctors forgot to occlude that hole and they'd be like why is this not suctioning and oh my god I gotta cover the hole up 
And if you're going to park it inside the esophagus and you're going to intubate, you don't want to have to have a piece of tape or your thumb holding that hole. So uh, Jim Ducanto came up with the Ducanto catheter. It doesn't have a hole. You put it in and it is suctioning right away. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you go in and, you know, we take it with our right hand and I kind of will distract the mandible and the tongue anterior. So I'll lift it open, make a spot for the mouth and make a spot for it to open up so I can put my blade in. And then as my blade is going in, I'm leading with the suction. So I'm keeping the blue suction in view. So I always say keep the blue in view. Because if you're using video laryngoscopy, you know, until they start making windshield wipers on the camera, if you get anything on there, your view goes immediately to crap. So you got to keep that suction in view, suction it all out, and always just plan on the patient vomiting. So I do this every single time. Uh, you'll see some anesthetists or anesthesiologists use a tongue depressor, and they'll use the tongue depressor to keep the tongue and the mandible out of the way as they put the blade in. Uh, I just use the suction catheter for this. Mm -hmm. And so once it's in and you can see your cords, you take it out because you're not going to be able to pass the tube on the right side if you still got your suction catheter in there. You're going to take that out and you're going to move it over to the left side and you're going to put it down into the esophagus. And then at this point is when you can pass the tube over on the right side. And you're just going to keep that suctioning. And so we created these salad mannequins where you cannulate the esophagus of a mannequin. You charge it with some, you know, we use like xanthan gum and vinegar and kind of green food coloring. <laughs> Depending on the year, we'll put pumpkin spice in there. Ooh, delicious. And you get people <laughs> used to like this vomit coming out at them and how to, how to control that. Because that's a really freaky situation if you're not prepared for it. You know, you're going to intubate and then all of a sudden you just get flooded with vomit. Yeah, projectile. And it's turned into like... You could use like a vegetable soup is what they do in the movies. A can of vegetable soup. It's really disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what we did yeah. was we were like, okay, this fake vomit is cool. We call Called SAC, simulated airway contaminant. Um, but Jim Ducanto invited Sam Ireland and I over to his house, and he's like, "All right, we're gonna chew up some steak, and then we're gonna spit it out in these dishes, and we're gonna use real food and see if the suction catheter works." Uh, and so he did that, and you know, oh we, my God. we chewed it up and we spit it out. We got a video of that you can sh put in the show notes uh, if you want. The baby bird technique. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and and then we we took Toomey syringes that you'd use for like urology, and we would cram that and pump that into the esophagus and then practice suction techniques. So it's just, it's a technique to utilize when you are going to intubate someone and you are expecting that they could vomit, which honestly, that's most people that we intubate. So one of the questions that I had, and I think you kind of answered it, is would you use this only on a contaminated airway or you, you practice it on every airway? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I use it yes. on every airway. Now, here's the thing is I might not always have the suction on. But I have it, the catheter and it connected to tubing. And I, somebody who's with me knows that if I need that, flip that, flip that on. And here's the reason why. So uh, some people were asking if the suction catheter will take away from your apneic oxygenation, which uh, Brian and Mike will get into in just a minute. And I thought that's a really good question because you are suctioning and you are suctioning oxygen out. And so what I did is I took a N-tidal O2 monitor and I put it... Uh, the probe inside the lung, and I wanted to see, I put a nasal cannula on a mannequin, cranked it up to 15 liters or 20 liters as high as it would go, and as I would introduce the suction catheter into the mouth, just right in the beginning of the mouth, you would see the O2 drop. 
But as soon as I would park it into the esophagus, it would go right back up. And so what that tells me is that if you are not parking that into the esophagus and you're just kind of letting it hang out in the hypopharynx, you are dipping into your apneic oxygenation and that oxygenation, that oxygen that's in the hypopharynx. And so for that reason right there, um, I may not have the suction on if I think that, you know, if they got blood in their airway, then whatever. I'm just going to keep it on anyway. But I always lead with that suction and it goes in and I, I hold it differently. And I know you guys can see me on the camera right now. Your listeners won't be able to. But typically you see people hold the suction and they hold it kind of like a pen like this, like they're suctioning out. And that's because the yank power had that hole right here that you would cover with your thumb. When you're doing the Ducanto catheter, what you're doing is you're holding it like this. So you're holding it like a dagger, like you're going to like stab somebody. And you're going in and lifting up like this and lifting that mandible, distracting that interior. And then when you put your blade in, you're not battling the tongue anymore. The tongue and the mandible are pushed forward and you're just sliding that right underneath. And you can keep that, that blue in view as you go in. So it's become a, just another airway tool, and then if they start to vomit, then boom, I know exactly what I'm going to do next. So the way that you have described the salad technique is for a person who is doing the actual intubating themselves, and so that's often the pre-hospital. It might be the physician or the respiratory therapist, but now let's talk about if we were in the hospital environment for the nurses who are assisting the respiratory therapist or the physician who's intubating, and Mike and Brian, you guys can weigh in on this one as well. What would the nurse's role be in assisting with a salad technique? Is it too many hands, too many cooks in the kitchen? Where would you want someone who's assisting you with it? How how would that look? Well, first of all, you got to have suction that works. I've seen too many times where somebody goes to intubate a patient, and then they need suction and it's not ready. So first and foremost, uh, something you can do is make sure that you have suction there, you have a liner, it's turned on, and it actually works. Um, also, as Tyler mentioned, we can be an advocate to choose the best device that we can get. Uh, if we can get a Ducanto catheter, there's a lot of people that are big proponents of this, then get a Ducanto catheter. If you can't, use what you got, I guess. Um, make sure it's available. Make sure it's handy. Have that conversation with the person that's performing the innovation. Where do, where do they want it? Because once their hands are on that patient and they're looking down into their airway, they want it where they are going to be able to feel it and grab it. They don't want to have to take their eyes off the patient, off the airway, to grab it. So be ready to put it in their hand or put it under the pillow right next to the patient's head where they can easily get it without looking for it. Makes sense. Yeah, and a key a key component of that that you kind of highlighted already was the fact that <clears throat> these are conversations that need to take place hopefully before you're in that scenario. And this kind of gets into a lot of what we're talking about in this whole episode, but especially in the ED setting, you need to be speaking to those respiratory therapists. You need to be speaking to those physicians and just make sure everybody's on the same page so that you're not in that moment when a patient's needing an emergent airway. And now we're fumbling around trying to figure out whose role is whose and where the equipment's going to go. One of the things yeah, that we, that's a great point. One of the things that we do um, is when we get in the back of an ambulance and I'm sure uh, you guys do the same thing, we have a checklist. And so we'll hand that checklist to uh, the EMT or whoever we're jumping in with. And on that checklist, it kind of goes down everything that we are looking at. So your BVM and title. But one of the things on there is your suction. And so I like to hook the suction up. Usually I end up taking their yank hour off because I'm in their ambulance, hooking in our Ducanto catheter. We carry one in all of our airway bags. 
And then we turn on the suction and I'm gonna make sure it works. I put it up to my hand, make sure it's working. And then at that point I may leave it on or I may just turn it off, but I wanna make sure that it's all set in the event that I need it. I'd say usually I keep it on because it, it just does not really seem to affect my apneic oxygenation at all. Mm-hmm. But the EMTs or the nurses, whoever is standing there that's going to be helping with this, uh, they can absolutely just remind you because you're getting in the game and you're thinking, all right, I got drug dosages, I got to get my BVM, my antidote, the monitors on, reducing doses for low flow states. You got a lot going on. It's very easy to forget that. So it's important to add that onto that checklist. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, okay. And so Tyler, you sort of touched on this about the old dogma that 10 to 12 seconds of suctioning, then you better get out. Uh, is salad sort of exempted from this old dogma because of it being deeper and being in the esophagus? And like you were saying, not in the hypopharynx and pulling the oxygen out. Is that why we don't have to worry about that old rule about 10 seconds and then you're out? Well, yeah. Cause if you think about it, if somebody's vomiting, that's bad, right? And like, if you don't suction them, then they're not going to be really able to oxygenate at all. So when you're looking at timing your suctions, that's usually if you're suctioning like an ET tube or a trach or something like that. When you have somebody who's actively vomiting, you suction until you clear the airway. And I think that that's a big thing that is maybe miscommunicated in school is that if somebody's vomiting, their saturation is going to go to crap. They're going to get aspiration. Like that's the priority. That is the first thing you do. And there's no amount of time that you need to wait. Like you need to suction as much as you can out. And then you need to be able to ventilate the patient. And time frames are only for if you're suctioning ET tubes or, you know, if you're suctioning a baby or something, I could see that, you know, they got a little something in their mouth and you don't want them to vagal down. But yeah, when a patient is vomiting and you need to protect that airway, uh, you suction until you clear the airway. Great. Is is this uh, salad technique appropriate for peds? Yeah. So we, you know, I can't say that it's been studied and FDA approved and stuff, but, um, in, you know, in peds covers a wide variety of ages, but I have read case reports. I've had people reach out who have done it on children as young as six years old, you know, in traumatic car accidents and stuff like that, where they've had to manage the airway and they said it worked great. You know, we uh, did a salad station at the Wisconsin EMS Association conference that we just had. And we had one set up with an infant and we were going over how you would do that and how you would set that up. You know, obviously the Ducanto catheter is probably a little bit large, you know, for that. But having a plan for suctioning, whether you're using a meconium aspirator on a smaller ET tube, whatever your plan is, think about decontamination. So are there any contraindications to using the salad technique for intubation? No. Perfect. All right. And so this is the kind of in conclusion, I've um, found recommendations, two different methods of using dueling Ducanto catheters. So one um, technique was where they had the Ducanto catheter in the traditional, you know, right at the entrance of the esophagus. And the other one was on top of it in the airway, decontaminating the airway that way. And then the second uh, method for using the dueling one was having one on the left side of the laryngoscope. And, and then in this case, they had a bougie because the ET tube wouldn't fit with one on the right side as well. So you had one on either side. What are your thoughts on those techniques or comments on that? 
Yeah, the double setup, you know, and I think this has caught on more so probably from a simulation standpoint, from an actual, you know, practicality standpoint. But yeah, it's it's great because if if you're suctioning and you still have a lot of copious amounts of vomit, and what immediately comes to my mind is like an esophageal varicity or something like that, where you just have a ton of blood coming up and you're trying to maintain the airway. Yeah, you know, I think absolutely you could do that is have one person with a kind of just right here in the corner of the mouth, fish hook. the other side is parked. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like a fish hook. And then the other one is parked inside the esophagus. Uh, one of the other things I teach when I do these decontamination stations is if you take like a 7.5 or an 8 ET tube, and let's say you're going to intubate, and all of a sudden you see a lot of vomit coming up at you. One of the things that you can do is if you don't have a Ducanto catheter or your Yankauer is just not controlling it, you can take your 8.0 tube or your 7.0 and just put it in the esophagus, the, the ET tube. Put the whole thing in the esophagus and then take your 15 millimeter adapter that sits at the top of that tube, pop it out, turn it around and it fits around the ET tube and then you can hook your suction right to that. So now you have suction inside the esophagus that's connected to your portable suction and you can begin to decontaminate the airway with that. Uh, some people even go as far as inflating the balloon to try to prevent it from coming up into the hypopharynx. But initially, you just get that in there and start suctioning right away. And then you can not use that same ET tube to intubate, but go in with another one to get around it. You know, Because the next best thing from putting an ET tube in the trachea is putting something in the esophagus to suction out what's coming up and decontaminate the airway. So you MacGyver Airways, not just T-Rex suits. That's that's pretty Absolutely. Important. That's I mean, pretty <laughs> talented and lots of applications for your skills. <laughs> so, um, and I do want to mention that... I haven't actually met his wife yet, so I don't know if she's inflated or not. But. <laughs> Shots fired. Oh, wow. Um, so you do have an episode on this. It's episode 33. It's called App Ox Suctioning and Out-of-Hospital Airway Management. That's on the foam frat. We'll, we'll put that on our show notes as well so yes, uh, you do a deeper dive on that so we appreciate it and you were mentioning about apneic oxygenation or the cool kids call it apox or apox and that's what we want to talk about next with the boone brothers and and tyler jump in if you have the time you have to step away then we got gotcha. you um yeah, absolutely this is another technique super easy it's, it's with equipment you already have at hand again something that's used widely in the pre-hospital environment Let's talk about what it would be like, uh, why we use it, and why and how it's used in the RSI environment. So, a couple of things when we're talking about apneic oxygenation, um, a lot of the studies that were done on this were OR studies. They were done at a time where they could get away with doing this, where they would actually paralyze the patient, allow them to be apneic, and they would watch their oxygenation. They would watch their CO two by uh, means of blood gases. And what they found was that the patient would maintain a very high normal um, oxygen saturation despite apnea for long periods of time. And you're talking like eight, nine minutes of apnea and they would maintain their oxygenation. Now what would happen, because there's no ventilation occurring, their CO2 would, continue, would start to build up and it would continue to build up. Because of those studies, it kind of led into... Um, emergency medicine and the fact that OR does this a lot, they, they'll pre-oxygenate the patient to extend the apnea period. And that's essentially what we're trying to do. 
apneic oxygenation has to be preceded by pre-oxygenation. We're trying to maximize the oxygen concentration in that patient to allow us as long of a period of time of apnea period as possible for us to not be rushed when we're trying to do the procedure. We can take our time, if you will, um, intubate the patient without causing any hypoxic event um, or any deleterious outcome for the patient. Yeah, and how that works, they essentially discovered the fact that the alveoli will continue to take up oxygen whether you have movement of the diaphragm or lung expansion. That's the whole idea behind it. And when you start to use this technique, not only are you decreasing that, ap- or you're decreasing desaturation during that apneic period, but it's improving first pass success because of that reason. You're not having these critical desaturations where you have to interrupt your procedure to oxygenate the patient, get them back up to 100% before you go back in. Also, they're seeing decrease in aspiration because you're not having to go back to your BVM, applying positive pressure, and then you know now you're starting to see vomiting in that airway. So again, it's just going to do something that's going to set you up for success from the get-go, which is obviously what we all want. So these are some sort of preparatory techniques. This is uh, what you're doing in advance so that your patient doesn't uh, end up uh, spiraling down that rabbit hole or whatever the case may be before you can really get control of the situation. Yeah. Yep. We, yeah. we call it a cliff, not a rabbit hole, but okay. that's all right. All right that's, yeah. You got it. Yeah. Um, so that's three <laughs> huge wins for apneic oxygenation. It decreases desaturation, buys you a little more time, which increases your fast, first pass um, success rates, and it prevents having to go out, bag them, and then increase your risk of aspiration. That's three huge exactly. wins for something super, super simple. Exactly. So describe for me exactly what is we're doing with apneic oxygenation. Super simple. What? Yeah. Go ahead. Can we talk about pre-oxygenation first? Absolutely. I, I, think that's, I think that's important. So, um, and this is something that I see working in the emergency department. The decision will be made to intubate a patient. It may not be emergent. Maybe it's for airway protection. Uh, the patient does have spontaneous breathing. And we make the decision that the patient needs intubated. So we have some time to get prepared. We talked about um, with the salad technique already, making sure suction's available. What I see a lot of times is that pre-oxygenation really doesn't get thought about. Uh, the physician will come to the head of the bed and they'll just intubate the patient. But there are some things as nurses, RTs, ancillary staff that we can begin doing. And if you think about what pre-oxygenation is doing, the, the air that we breathe, and I don't have the percentage in front of my head here or in front of my mind, but is a large portion of nitrogen, right? It's nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. And so what we're trying to do is to wash out as much nitrogen in that patient's airway and the dead spaces of their airway and their hyperpharynx. And when we do that, we are increasing the oxygen percentage there. Again, same thing that we talked about with apneic oxygenation, it buys us time. It increases the amount of oxygen that is available to the alveoli for gas exchange, and it um, it, it buys us time. It, it prevents a hypoxic event or the patient from desaturating. Is this akin to what like um, a free diver does before trying to dive deeper than anybody else without an oxygen tank, where they take ten really deep breaths before they go underwater? Is that the same thing? Yeah, I think so. So. One of the other things with that, I'm, I actually happen to be a scuba diver, so oh, I have a, great. a little okay, bit of knowledge that, about that too. But I, I have no knowledge. I've learned <laughs> yeah. about this just watching television <laughs> so, movies and stuff like that. So. <laughs> there are a couple of things that activate our brain to take a breath, and okay. some of it is high, 
hypoxia or low oxygen, but also increase CO2. So sometimes what those guys are trying to do is try to get the carbon dioxide level down real low because their carbon dioxide level will build up. And that may be a trigger for breathing more so than will hypoxemia. Um, so it's similar of a situation, but a little bit different. Okay, cool. Yeah, but yeah, good good question. Great, thanks. <laughs> <clears throat> but what's so cool about apneic oxygenation, once you have that technique for good pre-ox, you're using the same equipment, so it's a really easy transition. And that's, you kind of mentioned this before, it's such a simple technique, but can give us so much benefit in these scenarios because you're using the same nasal cannula because, again, as a caveat in pre-ox, you should be using nasal cannulas in your pre-oxygenation. It isn't a matter of just applying a BVM. You really want to be using that nasal cannula. What Brian and I like to do is normally get a baseline into idle CO2. If you go back to our podcast episode where we talked about some of this as uh, episode 14, we actually had Tyler Cristofoli with us, and we were talking about equipment. And what we discovered was that the nasal cannula in tidal CO2 could not get the flow rates that you needed for appropriate pre-ox and apneic oxygenation. So what we like to do is normally get that baseline in tidal CO2. Then we switch out that cannula with a regular nasal cannula or high flow if you have that available. And then that way it's there. It's already on the patient for pre-ox. And then once you remove your mask, it's still on the patient for apneic oxygenation. It's a super easy transition. So what we learned in your episode 14 is that not all cannulas are created equal. That's the name of the episode. And the one that you're referring to, I guess we call it the frog. Do you guys call it that? With the little bubble for the entitled yep. the frog. Yeah, so the frog is not mm-hmm. the one you want to use. That one you're going to remove, yeah. and then you're going to put just the regular nasal cannula. And the great yeah. thing about Apox is you can have that cannula on underneath your, if you were talking about an elective airway, underneath a non-rebreather or underneath your um, BVM. You can also have it, can you use it with an MPA? Yeah. So you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can use Apox with it. And what, uh, how many liters per minute would you recommend setting this cannula at? So a lot of the studies, most of them look at a 15 liter per minute nasal cannula. So when we're talking about pre-oxygenating the patient, um, let's say the patient's on a non-rebreather. Let's say they're a patient and they're a little bit hypoxemic, they're struggling. Uh, let's say, for an example, they're a COPD patient, maybe their CO2 level's really high and the decision's made, they're not ventilating well, we need to take over their breathing for them. Um, so in that scenario, maybe we weren't trying to maximally uh, oxygenate them anyways because they're COPD or we know that uh, the way they get their their drive up can be blunted by uh, hyperoxia but now we're talking about innovating them so our, we have to shift our thinking now we want to maximize their oxygen as much as we can so in that scenario even if they're on a non-rebreather to for their oxygenation let's say they're on a 15 liter per minute non-rebreather what we're going to want to do is put underneath that non-rebreather a 15 liter per minute nasal cannula and another thing with, with the non-rebreather, if, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, but next time you're around an oxygen flow meter, turn it to 15 liters per minute and listen to the sound and then continue to open it. Open it as far as it'll go and you will hear the gas just blast out of that thing. And most flow meters will go to like 30, 40, maybe 50 liters per minute at flush rate. Flush rate means just open it as far as it'll go. A lot of the literature that we see and a lot of the recommendations will be a 15 liter per minute nasal cannula underneath a non-rebreather at flush rate. So that non-rebreather, just as much flow as you can get out of it. And allow that patient is spontaneously breathing, allow them to take spontaneous breaths for three minutes or so, and you get a, a really good pre-oxygenation, that denitrogenation of their airway. 
Okay. Mike? Yeah, and that's a common misconception that it still seems to be prevalent that I've heard, especially in the nursing world, is a lot of people think that the standard nasal cannula can only go up to six liters per minute. I think we've all heard that. And the fact of the matter is that's simply not true. That's not the case. Now, one thing you do want to keep in mind, if this is an elective intubation, your patient is currently awake. Obviously, they don't have humidification, so that might be a little bit uncomfortable for them at those high flow rates. So maybe something that we want to titrate up to that 15 liters per minute just to give them a little bit of some time to get used to that amount of flow because it can be a little bit uncomfortable for them. Something else to also keep in mind is flush rates vary. So if you actually look at the side of your flow meter, you'll see the flush range. It's in, like Brian said, I think a lot of our standards are 30 to 40. So just something next time you're in the ED and you're kind of getting your, your bed set up, take a look at some of those things. Great. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So we talked about the non-rebreather for, for pre-ox. Um, sometimes that's not enough. So sometimes even with that, they need more. And that's when really we start talking about CPAP. So, so they, not only do they need oxygen, but they need some pressure. And there are some ways to do that. Um, Scott Weingart, he from a long time ago with the MCRIP podcast, he, he talked about the BVM. Um, if you're using a BVM, make sure you have a PEEP valve. I know the ED that I work at, uh, PEEP valves are not readily available. They're not on the BVMs. So it's, it takes a little effort to get one, put it on the BVM. And you can actually use that BVM as a CPAP device by putting the PEEP valve on, turning the PEEP to 10 to 15, um, have that oxygen flowing through it again at flush rate, so that high flow of O2 going through the BVM, and then using that as CPAP. So that's for like the shunting physiology, so like your pneumonias or your um, CHFers that require that PEEP? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any of that lung disease uh, physiology, like you mentioned, that shunting physiology is going to be effective, especially if the, you know, you're having a hard time getting them to 99, 100%. Uh, with pre-oxygenation. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to touch on too, because now we're talking about an O2 source for the nasal cannula. Now you need an O2 source for the non-rebreather, and then you're going to need a third oxygen source if you're going to have that backup BVM. So that's something else you want to consider too. You want to make sure you have all those sources available in your prep, because that's something you might run into. I know we run into that problem a lot, and then here we are trying to extend cables across the room because we don't have enough oxygen sources or we're using portables. So definitely something to keep in mind. So usually at the bedside in a critical room, you've usually got two options. And so if you needed a third, your recommendation is grab a full portable. Is that the best thing to do? Sure. Yeah, th that works. Um, one of the things that you can do too, if you only had two sources, if you have somebody that's available to man it, to swap it. So if you're going from a non-rebreather and then you're like, ah, oh, this isn't working, I need a BVM. Somebody could just unplug that non-rebreather and plug in a BVM. Right. Um, you just need somebody that c that can do that because you're not going to be using a non-rebreather and a BVM right at the same, same time. time. That's true. It, yeah, it just it just needs to be switched quickly. So either have a, a third source or just somebody that can switch it. Right. Good. So you know, Lisa, you mentioned the rabbit hole, and I said that we really we call it the cliff where they fall off of the de uh, desaturation cliff. And generally, fellas, it goes obese patients first, and then your pediatric population. Then it's going to be your geriatric, and then kind of everybody else. Yeah. This is pro probably mostly in your trauma patients. We're not talking about like underlying lung, you know, pathophys and all that, but mostly like in a trauma uh, crash airway. So is this appropriate for all of those populations? Is it obese and geriatric and peds? Can you use APOX? Yeah, there's really no contraindication to APOX. You know, we talk about hyperoxia and there being some deleterious effects of that. 
this is such a short time period that you're doing this. You're just trying to maximize their oxygen level for a couple of minutes. So there hasn't been any um, studies that really showed any deleterious effect. A lot of studies have come out with APOX um, showing maybe marginal benefit when you're looking at certain indicators like uh, lowest saturation for intubation. There's been kind of some question as far as how effective is it. Uh, but pretty much every study, there is a trend that looks like, ah, yeah, this is probably beneficial and there's not really any deleterious effect. So it's something that really most people that manage airways that have looked at this and study this feel like it's something that we should be doing, even though there's nothing that's real clear with a study that uh, some randomized control trial that says, absolutely, yes, this saves lives. It's not quite that clear cut. The physiology makes a lot of sense. All the studies, really, they um, hint towards a lot of benefit from this. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. Uh, let's just do it. As in, it doesn't seem to hurt. Yeah. So why mm -hmm. not just go ahead and do it? It's, it's not going to do any damage, but it might actually just save some lives. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, and we talked about the three big wins that we know about it. And the other thing that I love about it does not require a physician's order. It's not a complex technique. It takes 10 seconds and it's equipment that you already have at every single bedside, just a regular nasal cannula. Uh, I mean, you can't get better than that. Right. You can't ask for more than that to me. Yeah. Um, if it, as an as a in hospital RN, if I were looking at something like that, this is super easy. I can just grab it and go pop it on there, and and you know win win win. So um, sometimes I think when we have things that seem like good ideas, but they're super cumbersome and time consuming and technical and whatever, mm -hmm. but this is not that thing. No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. This is one of the themes that we keep revisiting on this podcast: this concept of uh, slaying sacred cows or initiating a paradigm shift in the way things are done in the hospital. So, do you see this as a, an active resistance to change, or is this just something that people are habituated to? Absolutely, people build up a lot of habits when it comes to their technique and mm -hmm. intubation, and this is one of those things that I've found that I'm still running into cases where people aren't. People are still not on the up and up as far as apneic oxygenation. Literally, my last shift, we were RSIing someone, and we had applied the nasal cannula, and I don't know if it was the respiratory therapist or the physician, but instinctively, they removed all of the equipment when he went to pass the blade, and then we literally had to intervene and reapply that nasal cannula. So it may be something in that moment that as a, you know, as the ER nurse who is informed and something, um, as informed of this technique and something you're wanting to implement, that might be a good learning opportunity for re-education. One thing that is also recommended that I like to do, and I think Palm Crit had touched on this, is taping the cannula to the face, because that's a little bit of a red flag. That's a reminder like, hey, this is intended to stay on, and people seem to be less apt to remove that when they go to intubate. Oh, that's a good tip. I don't think we actually even really talked about app-ox yet, but uh, so we've talked about pre-ox. So apneic oxygenation essentially is once, it, once we are ready to actually insert the blade into the patient's mouth, we have to remove the mask, whether that's the BBM. Um, actually, some people may be using a ventilator with CPAP or the non-rebreather. We we're going to have to take that off their face. But the nasal cannula absolutely can and should stay on. Um, the other thing that we have to think about with this, it's not going to be effective if we're not maintaining a patent airway. So if we're allowing that patient's tongue to drop back, and occlude the airway while the patient's happening, it's not going to do us any good. So what we need to be doing is, like you mentioned, an NPA that may work, or even just a good jaw thrust, making sure that the airway's open, the tongue isn't occluding the airway, 
during the apneic period or during the time we're allowing our sedative or our paralytic to take effect. The other thing, Mike, like you mentioned, sometimes, and this is, I've seen this as well, the RT or someone will pull the nasokinia off the patient's face. Um, the other thing that I'll see is they will instinctively, once the decision's made to intubate, they'll try to pre-ox them using BVM with positive pressure. And that's one of the things that this is trying to prevent is having to use positive pressure with that, P- with that BVM. Whenever we do that, we are increasing the risk of gastric insufflation, vomiting, and aspiration. So we're trying to avoid using positive pressure if we can. Um, if you have to do it, use it. So if the patient starts to desaturate and you need to bag them back up, bag them back up. Um, try to use low force. You know, I think it's about 20... Um, what is it? Millimeters mercury, centimeters water. <laughs> PSI <don't> <laughs> uh, of pressure is when when the um, esophageal sphincter will open. So keep the pressures low, bagging nice and easy. If you bag real aggressively, you're going insuff- to you're going to cause gastric insufflation. So, but if you have to use a BVM, use it. So, do you guys see a time where this is going to be a technique in that we teach in ACLS or TNCC or ATCN? Like, do you see that coming? I hope so. Mike, what do you think? Uh, maybe. I think it might still be a little too soon for American Heart, to be honest with you. Uh, I do think that if the evidence that is still continually coming out continues to point towards this and it's a little bit more of a definitive treatment, I think we'll see it more implemented in some of our formal classes. Those things just take time. But again, it's something that is not going to hurt your patient at this point. Like you said, you don't need a physician order. It's kind of like we do similar techniques. I don't know about you guys, but like when we're switching someone over to a new ventilator, if they're requiring high amounts of PEEP, a lot of us clamp our tube. Why do we do that? Well, I mean, the lit- it makes sense. The literature isn't even really there to support something like that, but we do it anyways because, hey, this makes sense. It might benefit the patient. It's not going to hurt them. I think that's kind of where we're at when it comes to Atbox. Right. So the idea of clamping the tube is that you're going to hold on to all that beautiful peep that you've built and not lose it during that quick brief time that you're changing them over. So like you said, it makes sense that that this is what we should do, although and it works, you know, it it works. Uh, And that kind of leads me right really nicely into my my uh, final thoughts or final question for you guys. And that is uh, we, we talked about this in a recent episode about kind of these dogmas and sacred cows and and how long it takes for evidence-based research to get into actual practice. And so my question is kind of, you know, what are your thoughts on that? But specifically, because the the air medical industry has adopted these two techniques, uh, but the in-hospital hasn't, and that's pretty common, I feel, I'm finding. So do you guys have any, any like thoughts on why air medical jumps on board sometimes and, and, and it's a lag time and to the in-hospital environment or even the ground EMS environment? Medicine is terrible about this. There's so many other industries that are way better than we are when it comes to implementing current evidence-based medicine. I think social media has helped a lot with that, the, the FOMED movement, where we're trying to share uh, medical education online, free, that type of thing, has helped. And I think the air medical community, the, the, we're big consumers. A FOMED. Um, we're usually very driven to uh, learn as much as we can about the clinical care we provide. And I think that kind of puts us in the forefront of why a lot of these things probably hit us first. And even EMS, I see that. I, I, I say 
I would say that EMS does a better job than nursing um, when it comes to consuming evidence-based medicine. Uh, unfortunately, you know, at least that's been my experience. I'm not speaking for everyone, but you know, a lot of the things I've seen is that EMS is a little bit hungrier for current clinical knowledge than nursing can be. I mean, nurses obviously want to learn. We all want to learn. It's not that people don't want to do what's best for the patient. I think sometimes they don't know how to get that information. And like Brian said, it seems like even in our own experience with our podcast, it seems like most of our listeners are EMS. But when we introduce the idea of FOMED and some of these quote unquote alternative ways of acquiring education, people are open to it. But sometimes they just, they just don't know how to get that information. So I'm hoping that'll change. Um, but I, I think Brian's right. I think you have to kind of be searching for it at first instead of it being provided to you in a textbook or a formal class at this point. Uh, so hopefully that's something that'll change. But just like this episode you guys are doing here, hopefully a lot of ER nurses take this and put it into practice. Yeah, and that's really kind of our campaign is to bring it in, into the hospital to the hospital nurses because I believe like you, I think they're hungry. I just don't think they know where to find it. Um, I think the air medical industry is a lot smaller. And so it's a little bit easy to wrap your hands around that with new information. The ER community is, you know, from critical access hospitals to level one trauma centers to, to uh, you know, academic resource center, you know, it's just so spread out that it's a little bit harder to to wrap around all of that. And then, you know, the other things we talked about those kind of critical conversations that you have to have with your providers uh, before you get into the crash airway situation, like, have you heard of this new catheter? Let me show you how we can do, it, you know, versus the independence that we have in the in the pre-hospital environment, both ground and air. Right. So, yeah. That's actually, was I was going to bring that up too, because, um, in the ED, you obviously have a medical provider right there. So I think it's easy to really rely on their medical knowledge instead of in EMS or in the flight world, you're alone. So th I think there's a lot more pressure on your shoulders that you feel like, you know, I'm responsible for the decisions of this patient. I don't have a doctor right there to make that decision to tell me what to do. You know, it's, yeah. it's up to me. So I, I think that's a little bit of a different dynamic. Um, but realizing as nurses that sometimes our physicians aren't up to speed either. And, we, you know, we can help educate even our doctors. Um, so, you know, we, we need to do what we can to, to really learn. Yeah, that's part of patient advocacy, which is our role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I quote you. Kind of following up Brian's thought, when you get a job in air medical, the autonomy is essentially handed to you at that point. I find, at least in my personal experience, in the hospital, autonomy is more of a thing that you have to earn. And I think that if you're going to approach a physician and start bringing up these new techniques, you have to have a good rapport with that physician or that respiratory therapist. They have to know that you are a competent provider that values education. And that's something that's going to take time that you need to represent in all of your practice, not just with these specific techniques. Because if you're a bare minimum provider and then all of a sudden you're trying to throw these bleeding edge techniques on someone, they're not going to take you seriously. So just as a blanket statement, I feel like in everything that we do, we always need to be looking at just doing it the best we can. Yeah, I think that's a great thought to wrap up on. So we, we are really appreciative of your time. I know it's uh, it's valuable. Yeah, especially since on top of being the healthcare professionals we now know you to be, you also uh, have a podcast of your own. Yeah. Yeah, so tell our listeners uh, where they can find you on your podcast. Yeah, so we have an education company called Heavy Lies the Helmet. 
It's a podcast and also an education website with a blog. Great. And we basically focus on emergency and critical care medicine. Uh, we do change it up a little bit. We're not purely clinical. We do have some transport-specific safety, survival-type topics that we try to cover. But for the most part, we cover a lot of a lot of clinical content that's going to be applicable to really anybody, whether that's pre-hospital, inside the hospital, whatever the case may be. We try to appeal to a large audience. So just don't be thrown off by the fact that it's heavy lies the helmet and you see our helmets and that it's only going to be air medical. We definitely try to tailor our information to emergency nurses or RTs or whoever you are that's listening. Great. great. And hopefully soon we're actually going to be offering CEUs. We've partnered with IA Med, who is a uh, review course provider for CCRN, FPC. Awesome. And so that'll be something too. So if you're looking for easy CEUs, give us a follow and that'll be something we'll be offering soon. Yeah. Congratulations on that. That's great. Thank you. That's really cool. We unfortunately lost Tyler a few minutes ago. Apparently his uh, department is uh, having a surprise audit. Being audited. (laughs) So he had to run out of the room. But Nisa, tell us a little bit about his podcast. His podcast is called Foam Frat and it's a podcast and blog as well. He's got a lot that's designed for uh, paramedicine in the flight and ground environment, but there's plenty for ER nurses, um, and other other audiences as well. We'll find plenty of good stuff there. And FOAM, again, stands for Free Open Access. Open um, Access to Medical Education. That's right. Okay, perfect. Great. Well, thanks, folks, for tuning in again today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. I certainly learned a lot. Um, if you would like to find out more about our guests uh, and their blogs and podcasts, come to check out the show notes on our website, thekeywordpodcast.com. You can also email us with any questions at the keyword podcast at gmail.com. And I'd like to thank our guests one more time for joining us this afternoon. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been much. our pleasure. <laughs> thank y'all. Fly safe. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be Tyler. Uh, thanks, guys. Had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds just like me. Uh, you know, I try. It's the least I can do. <laughs> <laughs>